All right, we're continuing our studies on how to read and understand the Psalms, and I'm trying each time, it's not happened each time, but I'm trying each time to uh, pick a sample Psalm uh, to look at briefly and give a brief survey kind of exposition. We'll do that again this evening, I hope. Um, We're looking this evening at the imprecatory Psalms. (laughs) It's probably not a burning issue on the top of everyone's list, um, but I suspect that I'm right when if I say that most of you who have read through the Psalms have at least puzzled as to what to do with these Psalms that call on call God to bring such judgment on the psalmist's enemies. Well, that's the imprecatory Psalms that we'll talk about tonight. We've looked at the lament Psalms now in some depth, three different times we've been talking about those. We've seen the major components of the lament Psalms, and we said at the heart of the lament Psalm, is a petition. Now, some of those lament psalms, the petition is for God to bring judgment against the psalmist's enemies, to punish them. These are the imprecatory psalms. Now, the word imprecatory actually is a little bit of a misnomer uh, because that indicates that it's calling on God to bring a curse on the enemies. The the psalmists here are not uh, calling on God to bring a curse on the enemies. Uh, not even revenge, but to avenge the psalmist for the wrong that has been done by the enemy. And again, this is in the petition section of the Psalms. I've given you on your outline there some of the samples. Uh, If you'd like on your own to look through some of these, Psalm 35, 55, 59, 69 is a very famous one, uh, and so on. Uh, We want to spend our time in Psalm 137 this evening, but let's take some time and glance at some of the others. Look at Psalm 35. Psalm 35. You'll note the elements of a lament psalm that we've been tracing the last few weeks. Uh, They show up here, but here in particular, the petition is a call for punishing the enemy. So verses 1 to 8 of this psalm, we have the petition. He begins with that. Notice, by the way, the direct address at the beginning, O Lord, contend, O Lord. That's the mark of a lament psalm. But he begins here with an extended petition. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon them when he does not know it. And let the net that hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. And then in verses 9 and 10, we have the anticipated praise, which again is a mark of a lament psalm. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him? And then verses 11 and following, we have the lament. 
Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. I, but I, when, I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed to my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in the morning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. And then again, we have the anticipated praise. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Remember, we talked about the thank offering that Moses had ordered under David, it was added a song to it, and it was a, a celebratory time for the whole congregation. Uh, that's the that's reflected here in verse 18. Verse 19 begins a petition section again. Let not those who rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink the eye who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land. They devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me, and they say, Aha! Aha! Our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. And here comes more of the all for judgment. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness, this is the anticipated praise, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Well, you see in there we have all the elements of a lament psalm, but in particular in the petition section, he's calling for judgment on his enemies. And it's not calling down a curse. It's calling to avenge the psalmist and to destroy and punish those who have wrongfully uh, pursued him. Psalm 69 is another uh, famous example of a lament psalm. We will... In time to come on Sunday mornings, <clears throat> look at this in more detail. Let's look at the uh, call to judgment in this psalm. Psalm 69, beginning with verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents for they persecute him whom you have struck down and, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. 
Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Well, calling for judgment. If you'd like to jot down Psalm 79, verse 12, we have another example of that. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors with taunts with, with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Well, you get the idea there. Psalm 83, uh, verses 9 to 18 is another. I think I'll, I'll move on. Uh, some of these imprecatory psalms are particularly harsh. Uh, we just saw that in Psalm 69, verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Kill them. Put them to death. And let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Psalm 109 might be another good example of a particularly harsh imprecatory psalm. Again, this is a psalm of David. <clears throat> Again, you see the direct address at the beginning, O God of my praise, that's the mark of a lament psalm. So we have in, the, in verse 1 the direct address and the initial petition, be not silent, O God of my praise. And then the lament. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. And then the petition, which is the imprecation, Appoint a wicked man against him, and let an accuser stand in his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out of the, sec the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may be cut off from the memory of from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. And then the expression of confidence. You, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because of your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. Well, verses 22 and following, we have more lament. Verse 26, we have more petition. Help me, O Lord, my God, save me. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. 
And then he concludes with a vow to praise and an expression of confidence. Well, I wanted to take time to just read quickly through a sampling of these to get us into the atmosphere of these what are called the imprecatory psalms. Perhaps the best-known example of it, and perhaps the harshest of them all, is Psalm 137. So let's go... Well, you have that on your outline. Psalm 137. It begins with a lament. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And then begins the petition. Verse 5, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the root of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundation. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. You ever pray like that? All right, so we have this, first of all, the lament section, and it provides for us the setting of the psalm. We don't have the psalmist himself identified. We can tell by the time we get to verse 4, obviously this is a, an exilic setting. So the Israel is in exile. Babylon has come, has taken them away, carried them to captivity in Babylon, uh, and now their captors, their overlords in Babylon are having fun with them. Sing us one of your songs. Sing us one of your happy ones. And we've hung our lyres on the, on the trees. We can't sing. How can we sing one of the Lord's songs when we're here? And so it's this lament. They're off in exile. They've been defeated, carried away to a foreign land. Now they're made the object of scorn. And so verses 5 and following, we have his petition. First of all, there's kind of a, an imprecation against himself, which ends up being something like a praise. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. There, you, you hear praise in that. He's longing for Jerusalem, the city of God, the place of the temple, the dwelling place of God. He has his heart set to go back. This is not just bare nationalism. He's looking back to Jerusalem as the place where he worships God in his temple. But then we have the petition, the imprecation against the Edomites who looked on and cheered. Verse 7, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundation. So Babylon came and Israel's other enemies cheer and say, yeah, sock it to them, give it to them again. And so now he prays against them. And then finally, verses 8 and 9, he prays against Babylon itself for destroying Zion, 
verses 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Now, the way this is worded, this is still part of the petition, but it has the sense of a, an expression of confidence. Blessed is he who shall come and do these things to you that you have done to us. All right, I think all of that then is enough to bring us to what I have on your outline, the problem of, impre- of the imprecatory psalms. Like I said, this may not be a burning issue that you've struggled with every day, but I suspect as you've read through the Psalms, you've wondered, what do we do with these kinds of Psalms? Is this a Christian way to pray? After all, Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek. Someone hits you, turn the other cheek, give them another shot. How do you square that? with this, or can you? And what about Stephen, for example, who, uh, when he's being stoned, prayed, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. How do you put all of that together in the same Bible, or do they belong together? And there have been all kinds of approaches to this, and one of the uh, major approaches that has been done is just ruled out imprecatory psalms altogether. They're not for us today. Uh, They might say that it's simply Old Covenant and dress it up that way, Uh, And under New Covenant uh, terms, we don't pray like that anymore. Uh, It might be that it was just plain wrong. We see the dark side of the psalmist in these kinds of psalms. You have a whole range of things. C.S. Lewis uh, had a very negative view of the imprecatory psalms and said some things about it that I think are just just, dumb. Don't reflect, I think, a reverence for the text that we should have. And the problem with rejecting the imprecatory psalms like that is that these are Scripture. And there's no indication that these psalms were displeasing to God. There's no indication that the psalmist was unrighteous in writing this. He seems to be righteous. He's an inspired psalmist saying this. And in fact, these psalms were given for public worship. It's interesting that all but two of the imprecatory psalms have the postscript to the choir master. The congregation's going to sing this. So dismissing these imprecatory psalms is just not an option for us. And in fact, I think we can uh, go a little further with that and say that these imprecatory prayers are not unique to the Psalter. We have them elsewhere in the Scripture as well. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, Moses prays that God will scatter the enemies. We find various imprecations throughout the prophets where the prophets prophesy against the uh, nations around Israel. The New Testament writers consistently considered themselves heirs of the Old Testament ethics, um, strong emphasis on justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We'll have to say something about that in a little bit. And in fact, the New Testament writers sometimes express their own wish for cursing or for judgment on the enemies. One famous example of that is 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, where Paul says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. 
Or Galatians chapter 1, anyone brings a different gospel, let him be accursed. Or Acts chapter 13, where we have someone opposing the Apostle Paul in his ministry, and Paul makes him blind. And in fact, we have some New Testament prayers for divine judgment. 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, where Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And then if there were any question at all, and I think this is the, the clincher for it, even the martyred saints in heaven today are praying for punishment on their persecutors. Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So you can't just dismiss the imprecatory psalms. It's just not an option. And yet, and yet, and yet, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. How do you put all that together? It's a complex question, and I don't by any means intend to give you the final word tonight, but I think I can point us in a direction. I, th I hope that will help. So next on your outline, a towards a Christian understanding. Some in the history of the church have, and still today, have approached precatory psalms as not curses on the psalmist's enemies, but as prophecies of what God will do to his enemies in the end. Spurgeon tended toward this a lot in his treatment of the Psalms. They are not prayers, they're prophecies. So it's not, it should be read, not may God punish them, but it should be translated, God will punish them. That's barely possible uh, with the Hebrew, um, but it, it's, con it's convenient and it, it really works. And I think, I think that's a very important part of the answer. We'll talk more about that as we go along. I think recognizing these as prospective to the end when God will judge his enemies is an important part of viewing the Psalms. But to view that as the only answer here, I think is just not warranted. There is an eschatological um, aspect to this all through the Psalms. Uh, David and the king typify Jesus the king, and David's victories and the king's victories foreshadow the king's victory in the end in which he will come and destroy his enemies. We have psalms that prophesy that. Psalm 2, for example, uh, he'll crush his enemies like a piece of pottery and he'll crash it and rule with a rod of iron. We have that kind of language in the psalms of the, the king, the messianic king coming and destroying his enemies, not just establishing his kingdom in a positive way, but in establishing his kingdom, destroying all who oppose. And then with that, the king himself, we'll see this later as we get into some studies on the Messianic Psalms, how the Psalter regularly, this is not just reading back into the Psalter from the New Testament, the Psalter regularly has hints pointing forward to, the, the, the point here is not just this Israel's king here, but it's pointing forward to Israel's great king who will come. And there are indications of that throughout the Psalter. When you read it in light of the canon, it becomes all the more clear, and I think that's an important aspect to keep in mind as we read. These are, in a sense, prophecies, but that's not the whole answer. In fact, here, uh, Psalm 137, verses 
8 and 9 are actually cited in Revelation chapter 18, verse 6, description of the destruction of Babylon at the return of Jesus. So that's part of the answer. But the psalmist is not usually looking on the far horizon. He's looking at his own enemies, and he's asking God to intervene. Now, toward an answer to that is this section I have on your handout called the Old Testament Context. And what I'm going to do is just give you a few pointers here just to put it in its setting. And again, this doesn't answer the question entirely. We'll get to more of that at the end. But it does provide a setting to which we can understand, I think, more sympathetically why the psalmist would pray like he did. Well, the first is the the psalmist's enemies are described as extremely violent and wicked people. There's often military terminology that, and the weapons uh, even mentioned, and that is to be understood not just metaphorically, but very often, I don't know, maybe even most often, I don't know, very often to be taken literally, not metaphorically. These are foreign enemies that are coming against David. It might even be an attempted coup. It might be uh, Absalom coming against him. Very wicked people coming at him to kill him. Uh, they're described as wild animals. They're described as bloodthirsty Uh, gnashing with their teeth, that kind of language. Just to emphasize the evil and the extreme wickedness of the enemies that the psalmist has in view. This is not just someone who has a grudge against him. Also, I mentioned there ancient warfare. In ancient warfare, women and children were not spared. You have to, when you look at the ancient warfare in the setting of the Old Testament, get out of your mind the idea we have today of rules of war and the idea of a tribunal trying people for war crimes that just didn't exist and in that world women and children were not exempt they were killed they were slaughtered their little ones were dashed on the rocks and often with great glee triumph over the enemy, and that's the reference in Psalm 137, verse 9, and the psalmist is just saying, do to them what they have done to us. Here he is sitting in Babylon, in exile. He's been defeated. The Babylons have come there. They've destroyed them. They've dashed their children against the rocks, carried the remainders away to Babylon, and he's praying for exact revenge on his persecutors. And in fact, in ancient warfare and the the enemies of Israel, the enemies were not, women and children even, were not considered to be innocent bystanders in the conflict. They were not, people were not viewed individually, but as a household. Um, In Israel and in their enemies alike, Uh, Women and children were part and parcel of what the nation was doing. We find some examples of that in Judges chapter 5, for example, of Israel's enemies, uh, women and children alike, hated God. It wasn't just these soldiers who are out there, but their wives and their mothers and their children uh, back at home hated God the same as, as they did. They were wicked people. And so again, pray 
they were praying, just do to them what they have done to us. Strict justice, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That ethic was part of the Mosaic Code. In it all, the psalmist, this is your next point there, the psalmist insists that he's innocent. He's undeserving of the hatred. He's undeserving of the violence. In that world, it was just pure, naked aggression. The psalmist did not deserve it. He had not done anything to provoke it. And uh, as one guy put it in in an article that I read, it's easy for us, he said, in our comfortable affluence to view this negatively. And I think that deserves some sympathetic reading. We sit here in our comfortable affluence, and we look at this, and how could you talk like that? But here we have extreme evil, extreme violence, unprovoked, coming against them. And so the the imprecatory psalms are grounded in a recognition of right and wrong, justice, and he's praying for that. Now, much more importantly, the next point on your outline, the king's enemies. The king's enemies in the Psalms are not just personal enemies. The king's enemies are God's enemies. They are hateful of David, and they're hateful of David's God. And David's concern in these Psalms, and all throughout the Psalter, is not just personal. He's attacked because he's king over Zion, the city of God. And he's being attacked, and God then is being attacked. God has promised that David will be king over God's kingdom. God has promised that this kingdom will will, uh, thrive and grow. And here these people come with extreme hatred and extreme violence against the king and against the king's God. And success against the king would be success against God's promise and God's kingdom as well. So again, this is not just mere nationalism and patriotism. It's zeal for God. It's zeal for God's kingdom. It's zeal for God's name. If David were to go down, if Israel were to be defeated, God's name would be brought down because he's made some promises. And that's what they're wrestling with. So for example, if you'd like to look quickly at Psalm 139, verses 19 and following. We always like Psalm 139 because of what it has in the earlier part of the psalm, uh, extolling the omnis of God and the great attributes of God. And later in the psalm, we have this imprecatory section, verses 19 and following, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak, evil. they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So in here, I think we need to see that David is not viewing this just personally. He's siding up with God. These people are opposing God and his program, and because of that, they hate God, and because of that, David is saying, I hate them as well. Now, interesting here, I mentioned Spurgeon earlier. He has an interesting comment here on this psalm, and he connects this, Psalm 139, uh, verses 19 and following. He connects that with 
1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, that I read to you earlier, which says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And then Spurgeon comments, He was a good hater, referring here to David. He was a good hater, for he hated only those who hated good. Of his hatred he is not ashamed, but he sets it forth as a virtue to which he would have the Lord bear testimony. To love all men with benevolence is our duty, but to love any wicked man with complacency would be a crime. To hate a man for his own sake or for any evil done to us would be wrong, but to hate a man because he is the foe of all goodness and the enemy of all righteousness is nothing more nor less than an obligation. The more we love God, the more indignant shall we grow with those who refuse him their affection. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Maranatha, 1 Corinthians 16. All right, so I think that's extremely important to recognize that the king's enemies are not just his enemies. They're God's enemies, and David views them as such. Also, next on your your handout, there are evangelistic connotations sometimes with these... uh, imprecatory psalms. And what I mean by that is that the psalmist will pray that by God's actions against David's enemies, the world will see that Israel's God is supreme and that he is just. Destroy them so that they will see that you are God. And in that sense, it has an evangelistic connotation. So, for example, Psalm 83, verses 16 to 18. Phil, why don't you turn there so you can see it? Psalm 83, verses 16 through 18. Fill their faces with shame. Why? That they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are most high over all the earth. So there's this prospect that If God will bring judgment, others will learn from it and repent and follow him. So these imprecations then, these imprecatory psalms, in a sense, are prayers of faith. I have that next on your your handout. They're not self-avenging, but they're asking God to avenge injustice and to promote his name in the earth. And then the next, almost the next to the last one there, I think is uh, important. Exceptions were always allowed. Exceptions were always allowed, and that is exception from or exemption from judgment was contingent on faith and repentance. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter seven, Moses commands Israel going into the promised land, scorched earth policy. Wipe it out. You get into Judges chapter 2, and you have an exception. Remember who it was? Rahab. Harlot. And then you get to chapter 6, and you have Achan, an Israelite, who didn't carry out the ban, and he's destroyed. So we have a harlot who's spared... We have an Israelite who's condemned. 
And I think it points out well a principle that we have running through the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 18 states it very specifically. God pronounces a curse if there is repentance. He'll turn back. So that, I think, has to be factored into it here. It's not that David doesn't want them ever to repent, but given that they will not, they must be destroyed. Now, one more factor, and this brings it closer to us now. And that is, we must make a distinction between the church and the state. Ancient Israel was a sacral society. The state is the church, the church is the state. I'm using church anachronistically, but they're, they're one and the same in the Old Testament context. It is not so today. So, for example, the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount um, turn the other cheek. That command is not given to the state. He is not saying, if a man commits murder, give him somebody else. If he robs a bank, point him to the next one. It's not given to the state. It's given to the individual. And it's given to the individual in the context of living for the kingdom. And the connection seems to be that of persecution for righteousness' sake. And so, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, those things. These are not given to the state. The state is commanded to enforce justice in the earth. It is given the sword, Paul says. The sword, that's not the instrument of spanking. That's the instrument of of death is given the sword to enforce justice in the earth. The people of Christ themselves, by contrast, are called to take up the cross of Christ and bear it every day. And yet, at the same time, while we are commanded to love our enemies and turn the other cheek, we are also commanded to pray thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as in heaven. And all of the connotations of that, including his judgment on the enemies. And we must not forget that when that prayer is finally answered, Revelation chapter 19, God's people will be cheering over the ashes of Babylon. They'll be rejoicing. Now, you might wonder how that can happen, by the way. How can you be rejoicing at someone's destruction? And I think the answer is that in that day, finally, if not before, we will have been brought to see things from God's perspective, and we have so aligned our affections with his and our alliance with him that we will want what brings him glory. I saw a glimpse of this one time. A good friend of mine, he's a pastor, brought up in an unbelieving home. His dad had a particular vengeance against Christianity. He taught his children, this friend of mine, he said he taught us just evil things about Jesus. He was a homosexual. He was, you know, this, that, and the other, and just a wicked man. And uh, some years ago now, um, he was telling me that uh, his dad was dying. He was at the hospital with his dad. He was literally on his deathbed. And he tries again to talk to his dad about Christ. And his dad came back. I forget the specifics now, but his dad came back with some more blasphemous thoughts, uh, words about Christ. 
And my friend said, he, he said, I stood there and thought. He said, I love my dad. He said, I, I love him more than I can say. I, he gave me much, and I appreciate him for so much. But he said, I had to stand there and think, you know, when you die, you're going to get just what you deserve. And I saw then, just I say I saw a glimpse of it. Here's a man, who, he loves his dad, but his affections for Christ are stronger. And I suspect we'll see something like that in the end of ourselves as well. Now then, the question, let's bring it to more practical things. Can we or should we pray for God to judge our enemies? Let me answer with a few specifics. Number one, certainly we can pray God to give them repentance. Two, certain, certainly we may pray, pray that God will hasten the kingdom of Christ to come in its full con- consummation with all that it entails, the destruction of Babylon and all of that. Three, we may certainly pray that God will use the state to maintain justice and order, both inside the borders and, if necessary, outside the borders, to punish the wicked, to protect against the enemy. But here's the rub, here's the big question. Can we pray, should we pray, for direct divine intervention, for immediate judgment on those who oppose righteousness in our own experience? And I will say yes, but let me give you a couple of two qualifications. One, we may pray that God will intervene if, number one, it is not merely personal, but a zeal for God in his, the promotion of his interests. This is not selfish praying. Here's somebody who's hindering the advance of God's work and God's kingdom, standing in the way of it. I think we can pray for the for that to be removed. And then number two, we must recognize that that judgment is not ours to execute. We leave it to God. God does not give us the warrant to take up arms ourselves against it. We may pray, God intervene, God take down the wicked, but I don't think we can say, I'll shoot him for you. Let me give you some specific examples of how this might work out. Let's say a hostile nation wants to overthrow the United States. Let's say it's a Muslim nation on a jihad. I, I think it's ironic they view us as a Christian nation. That is so far from the truth anymore. But because of that, they, they want to exterminate us. I think it's entirely right for us to pray that God would use the state and our leaders to make decisions that would protect us against that, and to intervene and, intervene and destroy the enemy. I think it's entirely right. I think that one's pretty easy. If a man is to attack me because of my witness for Christ, now that's another matter. I remember one time when I was, I couldn't have been more than five, um, maybe six, but um, I was a very young boy. My dad had been out, and he came home with his face obviously been punched and beaten, fat-lipped. And he'd, he'd, been, he'd been made a punching bag. And here was some guy who used to be in the church, was mad at Dad because of what he was preaching. And happened to bump into him on the street, and took it out on him. And, uh, 
It was pretty traumatic, as you can imagine. Um, my dad was a fighter. He fought in the Golden Gloves. And when, when he told his brothers about it, they absolutely refused to believe it. They thought he was pulling their leg. Not, the gym that they knew just would never have, I mean, he had shredded them. Um, and, in fact, if the guy had tried to mug him, or it had been different. And he'd been glad to shred him. He'd come after his family or something. But it was, this, was, this was different. This was for the gospel. And Dad stood there with his hands to his side and let him take his shots. I think what was at stake at that point, that's what was required. But let's take that a step further. Let's say if someone is lying about the church, actively involved in trying to hinder the testimony of the church, hinder the witness of the church, the question comes up, at what point can we pray against him? That's becoming more and more a possibility in our culture. Um, We can certainly pray, save him, give him repentance. I think we have every warrant at some point to say, expose him. Expose him for the wicked hypocrite that he is. Discredit him. Remove him. I think we have every warrant at some point to pray like that. But, but, check your motives. Make sure the concern here is for the advance for the con- concerns of Christ, His interest, the advance of the kingdom, and not just this is my church. That's different. What about leaders of cultural centers in our? Society promoting and enforcing evil. So leaders in the education world enforcing evil. Leaders in the entertainment world, political world, increasingly enforcing evil ideals on us. At what point can we pray against them, or should we? I'll give you one example that I'm familiar with. A professor friend of mine um, at seminary, his brother was um, outside an abortion clinic, um, I think holding a sign, as I recall, standing there holding a sign and praying uh, that God would deliver the babies. A man came up and got all in the face of this guy, standing still, deliberately not provoking, got all in his face, caused a ruckus. The guy stood still, and he caused the ruckus until finally you know, hollering and screaming at him until finally the police came over, arrested this guy holding the sign, and he was brought before the judge. Thankfully, it was caught on video. And so in the courtroom, the video was shown, and you you have to recognize this guy was not the one provoking the problem. So the judge dropped the charges, but not in such a way that that would exonerate him. He dropped the charges because he had to, but first of all, gave the man a lecture and told him he'd better never see him in the courtroom again and you've got to stop this this kind of provoking. And he put all the blame on him and made it sound like he was being merciful to him to, to drop the charges. I have no trouble praying against a judge like that. No trouble at all. What about when this government begins to oppose the church, impose regulations? This is coming. Gay membership. You can't exclude him because he's gay. Gay officers. You can't exclude him from from an office in the church because he's gay. That's coming. When public officials are enforcing that kind of thing, 
What, what do we do? Well, first of all, first of all, remember that this is nothing new to the church. This is nothing new at all. From the very beginning, uh, church was required to burn incense to Caesar and give him worship. And now today, we read in the news this week that President Xi of China is starting some effort to demand that the people swear allegiance and worship to him. It's coming, coming there. That kind of wickedness, that kind of arrogance, I think at some point we have to say, yes, we can pray that God would intervene and not allow this to, in, to hinder the work of his kingdom. I think we can pray, God, if you will not give him repentance, if you will not save him, remove him. And then at the end, in any case, in any case, use these events, these events to the advance of the gospel, and in the meantime, embolden your people. That's not a final answer. It's not a definitive answer. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer. The general answer is, yes, I think there is room for this at some point, but we must be careful to recognize that this is not for personal vengeance or even personal avenging. This is for concerns for the kingdom of God. 